welcome back to another season of the Breaking Western Podcast. We are now in season four. <laughs> Going for broke. I love that pun. Going for broke. That's good because you made it. <laughs> I did. I feel really good about that. But I'm also excited to get into this season because we are here to really dive into what it means to be a mindful consumer and why quality items are worth spending our hard-earned money on. And they are. And they are. So, Abby, tell them who our first guest is. And this should be a familiar face, voice, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) We love her. She's one of our favorite people. Mm -hmm. We've got Hunter Old Elk back for this season. You're welcome. She's going to drop some serious knowledge on us today. I can already feel it. Hunter, how are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How are you, guys? We're so good. It's rainy here, so I feel like we're very chill today. <laughs> Something oh. like that. We <laughs> had like heat, and it was burning up everywhere last week. So we're all, we can only go up from here. <laughs> wow, so sorry. that sounds horrible. <laughs> so fun. We just get the humidity here, so we breathe our water, and we don't have to. <laughs> yeah, super cute. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I just realized I should have I should have given you a better introduction for those who are just joining us. Um, Hunter is a tell me tell me the name of your position again. Curatorial. Assistant. Yeah, I'm the curatorial assistant for the Plains Indian Museum at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. Um, those who have traveled the Mountain West, uh, we are considered the East Gate of Yellowstone. Um, so we get many different travelers in and in and through this region. Um, and for people who rodeo, it's also the rodeo capital of the world. So 90 nights of rodeo starting in June and ending in September. The more you know. Well, they have the nightly rodeo, right? Yeah, the night rodeo every single night. And it's right there at the entrance of... Um, uh, uh, right, right as you're about to enter Yellowstone on the highway, um, it's right there at the end of town, and it's a pretty awesome rodeo grounds. Um, Cody has one of the largest, like Fourth of July celebrations, so people are very excited. <laughs> yeah. So is that where you're gonna wear my tank top at? Yeah. Last time I'm gonna wear your <laughs> tank top. Plug. <laughs> for the Angela's new record drop, which is coming out July 1st on all streaming platforms. Hunter, I love you. Oh my God. <laughs> and Abby designed the shirt, so it's like a double plug. Yeah, there you go. I wish everyone could hear how hard I'm rolling my eyes right now. hear the eyeballs rolling back. So, Hunter, tell us a little bit about what you do in your role as a curatorial assistant. What is a curatorial assistant? It's a mouthful. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I know it's, it's kind of a mouthful because got a lot of words in one title. Um, but basically, I work with the collections of Plains Indian people in a museum setting. Um, and a lot of my work uh, stems from uh, bringing communities together. Um, in a collaborative form. And so those are like local tribal communities in Montana, um, North Dakota, South Dakota, and in the state of Wyoming that we live in, and bringing those people in to, to access and um, interact with the collections that are in museums. Um, and I do that through a lot of different mediums, but uh, our media, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But the biggest um, is through digital media. And so focusing on social media and um, all of the fun stuff that the Internet has to do, uh, including podcasts. I've been on the Breaking Western podcast a couple of times, Uh, YouTube, um, blogs, all of that stuff. Love it, especially that podcast note. (laughs) (laughs) So does that kind of go back to – we were talking about in the first episode representation and how you're showing up in different forms of media. Absolutely. Yeah. Representation matters. And, um, a lot of the focus of what I do is highlighting the work of, um, creators and makers, artists, um, from tribal communities, uh, into the larger world. Um, and you know, the, the Western industry is absolutely no exception to, to representation. Um, I was really excited to hear that you guys had Mud Lowry 
um, on um, as a as a as a featured speaker this year, and so that's really exciting. Yes, yeah. So tell us why it's so important to have that space where where people are being represented fully and accurately. Well, I think it's time. <laughs> I mean, if yeah. it's something that is a huge reason, um, a huge indicator of why representation matters, um, and. It's not about erasing the culture of the past, because um, council culture can be really toxic, um, but it's about creating space for new and vibrant voices um, and or voices who have always been there but have been, you know, kind of pushed to the side um, or end over, like, their creative talents being taken and adapted and not getting the proper amount of representation or reparations um, for their creative nature. Um, and so in being, uh, creating representation, you then give access and you give access to creativity and access to, you know, so many different parts of, of, the, of, of the world. And, and that's really cool. Ooh, I love that. Thinking of it as a building block, as a spit, like a, a way to open a door for more people to be equally as creative or following those footsteps. Oh, yeah. Um, it has to be equitable in a lot of ways. And so um, when we look at access, we're able to create um, a foundation of exchange, right? This, like, beautiful exchange of ideas and this beautiful exchange of cultures and the vibrancy that has to do with a lot of that. And so this is a lot of, like, what I see in uh, the Western industry is um, this, like, interest in myths and reality. And so looking at, like, native imagery and iconography as a huge foundation of Western culture. But that has roots um, to the first peoples that are here. Um, and so many of the clothing that we see now is very much a part of, um, you know, those interactions that, like, our early settlers and, and Native Americans had. Um, in part, I mean, you can take, like, fringe, for example. Fringes is something that... Um, indigenous people have been adorning their clothes with for millennia um, to then, right, like now the Western influencers with their beautiful fringe clothing, and that's like so iconic, um, to them looking at iconography, um, things like teepees, thunderbirds, um, wash blossoms, and seeing these different images show up, um, and they're very heroic and they're very noble, uh, but, but where have we gone too far? You know, that is, you know, the conversation that I think we have a really interesting um, place to, to start talking about is, like, when do we take that image too far and why is that an issue? Yes. So can we get down to the roots of that? You briefly mentioned erasure, and I think that's a word that's really important. How How did this even happen? How did we get to a point where we're so disconnected from the images or the motifs that we're seeing every single day that we have no idea where they actually come from. Absolutely. So do you want me to get like really academic with you or <laughs> do you want me to like yes, bring down a little bit? <laughs> we can go all over the place with this. And so erasure. I hope everybody is listening with their notebooks today. <laughs> the chalkboard is out. Uh, <laughs> Teacher. This is how my brain works. In session. Um, so let me think about erasure for a second. And so when we think about interactions um, within different communities, right, and so let's take the relationship that the first Europeans had with the indigenous people in the United States, Canada, Australia, Mexico, you know, all of these contemporary countries that we now see. Well, erasure is the act of one colonial power so take, for example, Britain coming over or France coming over to these communities or um, uh, different parts of Europe taking over Africa and using their societal norms to then colonize that area and then the interactions and the cultures of those people that lived there prior to the first Europeans coming over, then um, basically is what you call uh, – it, they become a part of the larger colonial imperative. And so it diminishes the existence of 
that original culture. And then those people are then asked to integrate into the colonial practices. And so those practices that um, Europeans have now introduced. So that is erasure. And um, it is it's something that um, eliminates the presence of those indigenous beliefs or those um, first beliefs for the colonial practice. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, that does. Makes total sense. And to like that you're the erasure is you're also just like they're still there, but you're like, no, 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 this is the right way. And we do things the right way now. And your opinion and the way that you've always done things is irrelevant because I'm the colonizer. So, yeah. And so erasure is, if, if we're looking at it, it's an interaction between two forces. And so the um, culture that is erasing is the powerful culture. Mm-hmm. And, and their ideas are then taken over. Their ideas take over the belief systems of, of the other cultures that were originally there. And that's systemic, right, and, and very intentional. But for what gains? Like, what is the, the benefit then, let's say, for example, within indigenous communities in the United States at the time of colonization? What did the colonizers stand to benefit, and how are we still seeing that play out today? Yes, and so um, we see this in a lot of different ways. And so we're using really large academic terms, right? Erasure, assimilation, colonization. And so these are all processes that are intertwined and they relate with each other. And so colonization is the first practice, right? It is the overarching policy or practice or um, behavior of taking control of one group or one area. You then ask that group to assimilate in in adopting their culture, um, adopting the culture that is existing to the culture of these um, people who are trying to enforce these cultures and behaviors. And then that becomes the dominant culture. And then the third part of that is erasure. And so that original culture or belief system or power that existed here prior prior to colonization, then gets lost in that process of colonization. And so it's three parts, colonization, assimilation, and then erasure. Mm, I love this class. Yes, that makes so much sense. And when you break it down like that, then it gets kind of awkward to think that now this more dominant culture is saying like, well, hey, there were kind of some cool uh, things like your teepees. I think that would look good on a T-shirt. So how does everything that we just talked about um, impact things like the knockoffs and the copying that we're seeing within, say, Western fashion today? So there's a lot of different like ways that I can think about this. Um, I think about the fact that the United States, as a constitution, is a very young nation. Like, in comparison mm-hmm. to something like the British Empire, right? Like, London is um, the oldest city in the world. It's 2,000 years. Um, or it's and one of the oldest cities in the world. The constitutional United States is not. The constitutional United States is only like 300 and something years old. Um, I'm a historian, not a mathematician, so don't ask me to do the math on that. <laughs> um, we'll let it slide. <laughs> we can see that very much like when the first settlers came, um, the first European settlers, I'm not going to say the first settlers because there's, there is, mass movements of people that were here prior to, you know, our, our good friend Christopher Columbus getting lost um, in the <laughs> But um, you see these people coming through, and so that's 500 years of mass movement. Um, well, they then start to become a part of this culture. And so settlers are seeing and they're interacting with the indigenous persons that are in the Great Plains, in the region, um, and they're adapting their lifestyle to fit that. And so let's take, for example, um, right, like our TV structures and um, our mobile structures were adapted by settlers because they didn't have the most up-to-date or um, technologically advanced practices when they moved here. And so that becomes really iconic, and you start to see, like, this relationship of myth and reality. So you have, 
your um, white settlers, colonizers coming through, and they are fighting for the same territories and the same lands that were originally occupied. Um, and we can see that these stories then become a part of American culture. They, they become a part of our collective um, culture for how the people, how our people got here and where they came from. Um, and so I can see this, um, you know, starting in, like, through the view of museums, um, how similar uh, cowboy culture and is an, a reaction to vaquero culture that is, you know, an indigenous practice of uh, Central and South America. So that horsemanship and then the relationship that Native people are having as horsemen, too. Um, to the pageantry, I can see, you know, cowboy culture being um, uh, huge parts of pageantry from top to bottom, the way in which people adorn and clothe themselves. Uh, in, you know, if we look at historic pictures, we can see um, historic cowboys and they're wearing clothing that is adapted like Plains people. May that be like their coats or their gauntlets. And so these images, they permeate for many centuries. And it's not something that we're just seeing in, you know, the last 25 years and what Wrangler is, you know, releasing. It's, 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 it's historical and it's multi-generational. Mm. So there was copying before there was capitalizing off the copying you're saying. <laughs> yeah. And so I would say there's copying, but I also think that there is a cultural interaction as well. Mm. So that's when we start to see like integration, cultural integration um, being a part of this. And so, you know, take, for example, your first silversmiths that were coming from Spain and they were coming from Europe and they were teaching uh, the community members in the Southwest how to silversmith. Well, then the indigenous people are taking that practice and they are, um, it's flourishing, it's flourishing within their societies. Um, to then looking at how people are interacting and, and basically there's this, this interaction that you see over and over again. Um, where does it start to become an issue? Cultural appropriation starts to become an issue when you are seeing these many communities that are interacting with each other and they're seen as a myth and reality. And so indigenous people being ambivalent to American society because they're sustaining their traditional beliefs. Well, let's look at the way in which Hollywood, uh, you know, the first Hollywood is very fictitious. And we start to see these heavy, like heavily stereotyped um, images of native people. Uh, and we start to get the tropes like the noble savage, the savage warrior, the shaman, um, the over-sexualized native woman. And that permeates in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, we can break down, like, where these images come from. And, and a lot of it, I think, really comes from, like, Hollywood. It starts it starts in Hollywood, and it permeates. And, you know, thank you to the John Waynes and the Clint Eastwoods of the world, but that doesn't necessarily set us up into a great place. <laughs> Word. So <laughs> it sounds like it really becomes an issue when people or entire cultures are being firmly – cemented in the past, like in this in this window of the 1800s, early 1900s, in a way that's either romanticized, like looking back at this idea of times gone by, with like a teepee on the plains and, um, you know, like things that we can't have anymore, or a number of these tropes that you just mentioned, even down to the idea of like, this is my spirit animal, like so in touch with nature, essentially creating profiles that that don't exist or acknowledging the reality that indigenous people very much exist today in the United States and are alive and well. Uh okay, so I have a game for you. Let's, you know, let's think about this. Ooh. This will be a really quick interaction between you and I. When I say Native American history, just start shooting out some of the times in your history book that you learned about Indian. And Abby can't play because she has a degree in Native American history. So I guess it's wait, wait, I'm ready. One. I'm ready. <laughs> so uh, what are the few times in your social studies book that you learned about Indians? Thanksgiving. 
That was absolutely the first one. Like, and two, I always think about like being in preschool or kindergarten and having um, to the make like yeah the, the paper feather. headbands and feathers and like we you dress up and play. It's just like an iteration of cowboys and Indians. Yeah. Oh, so, like, pilgrims and Indians. Yeah. Sitting around your your kindergarten table, coloring pictures of like shirtless um, men in um, pieces of leather, handing like a pilgrim in a suit a, a whole turkey. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's look at our favorite Disney cartoon. Pocahontas. We love Pocahontas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know, but Coco kind of got it because he was he's cute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was fit. <laughs> that, that, and I would also love a pet raccoon. So there's oh, a lot of sure. things in that movie that I don't find problematic. Like, I want a grandmother willow only because she seems to be, like, a very comforting individual. Like, she's oh, very much. I want tree leaves to scoop me up, but it also gave me a really um, inaccurate worldview where I was just, like, waiting for the tree in my front yard to come alive and cradle me. I don't know. So, um, what are some of the famous battles, you know, we can, we can think of? The, the famous what? Battles. Ooh. Saddles? Uh, battles with a B. Oh, battles. Oh, I was like, I was like, all right, all right. Battles. <laughs> um, battle, well, Battle of the Little Bighorn, I think of right away. Yeah, that just happened last weekend. Yeah. Custer died for the 145th time. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Do <laughs> um, I'm trying, like, now that I'm sitting here really thinking on it again, I feel like the first time I really ever learned about any of those was in high school and just briefly. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily. Elementary school truly was, like, Columbus, Thanksgiving. I don't know if there was anything after that. Might have been it. And so the way in which we learn our history is it's very regionally specific. Um, and so I think about, right, like the, the kids of the East Coast are going to learn a very different history than the kids of, um, the Midwest and Central and, um, Central and the, the South, uh, to then those who are going to learn it on the West Coast. And so when we only have, you know, a, a room for six spaces in, the social studies books. And so the other ones I can think of are like the French and Indian War. Um, mm-hmm. I can think of some of the uh, great battles, battles that are happening on the plains um, to then the boarding school era. And then it ends at 1890. Absolutely. And I'm just, and now I'm sitting here thinking, so we, we live on Meskwaki and stock land mm-hmm. uh, primarily. And we're in an area not far from the Meskwaki settlement at Tama, and we live right right on the edges of Blackhawk territory where the Blackhawk Wars were happening. Uh-huh. And we didn't learn about really any of that, even in even when it came down to local history. And so, yeah, and and our and our land has memory, and those are huge parts of of um, the experiences of those contemporary people, is like where they came from. Um, and so I, you know, thank you for sharing that. But I also think about so like when we start to look at imagery, um, we're only seeing it through this very small anthropological lens in the few sentences that we get in our social studies books. And so I don't blame people for not knowing because it's our school system that's really failed us in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's, it's, it's time to change some of that, you know, it's time to, to change those narratives. And so bringing it back to, um, like the Western industry, you know, let's also do another game, us three. What are our images? What are our favorite images that are native inspired? Thunderbird headdress are the two on the top of my mind right now yep thunderbird headdress blossoms come to my mind right away mm-hmm. squash blossoms turquoise jewelry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the beautiful oh, i feel like feathers in general like if if people want to make something look like whimsical or indigenous they'll like put feather, they'll slap some feathers on it or like put feathers in the mane of a horse or you know yeah. something to that effect 
are we are are the way in which we start naming clothes like our war party um <laughs> I've, I've mm. seen people like name name their boutiques like the war party boutique or something like that and mm-hmm. um and that's really funny to me but because <laughs> i just look at it and i'm like um, i don't think that's what you meant but maybe it was <laughs> um, <laughs> So then, you know, thinking and, you know, I think we should do a whole episode on the boho movement in Western industry. (laughs) There's a lot of, like, political economic stuff that, like, just doesn't make sense to me, like, and with boho culture. But it really kind of stems down to this idea of, like, free thinking and free thought, um, but at the expense of using those images for for stock and using those images for entertainment and um, that that's problematic. And so where do we go from there? Yes. So can we dive in really quickly into a few of those popular images or motifs or the general iconography that we see in the Western industry so that we can just like collectively gain um, or just start to develop those critical thinking skills about why things might be problematic. For example, uh, this idea of Aztec print. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> I would just have to tell the listeners that I ruined the term Aztec for Abby and Angela yep. as they view like the Western industry. And so let me explain a little bit. And once you start to like, once we just speak on some of these terms, you're going to see them everywhere. And I'm sure some some psychologist has some some term for once you recognize something, you see it everywhere. Like, I have a I have an Equinox car, and I see those Equinoxes all over the place. So, anyways, like Aztec print and um, uh, right, the Aztecs were one of the great empires of the world from you know their reign was two or three hundred years in what we now consider mesoamerica and it was this dominant culture belief in central mexico and um they were an indigenous group of of our relatives in mexico well when you start to look at the western industry this is a term that many different retailers and boutique owners and sellers will use when they reference anything that is like maybe um, culturally significant to indigenous persons. And so you can see this with geometric designs. You can see this with other types of tribal designs. Well, when you start to use the term Aztec, um, you don't have to be accountable like to contemporary people or the people that those might like loosely or and or exactly relate to. Um, the same can be said for how other terms are used. Um, and so like, right, are, are, you're a gypsy, which is referring to like the Romani people or like that's a big one too. spirit animals, um, which, and we use these to like, to, to reference people like, oh my gosh, you are so funny. You are my spirit animal. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and so spirit animals, that, that really came about in the 60s and 70s during the age of Aquarius. Um, and this was, you know, this this belief system um, that when we become one with nature, there is this one animal that represents you or represents your entire belief system um and that's how you define yourself and so you know i've heard people say like oh my gosh like dolphins are my spirit animal have you ever been to the ocean (laughs) like what (laughs) (laughs) and so it's just like it doesn't make sense but i think it's like how we want to individualize ourselves um so then some of these other images that we use um and so things like a war bonnet, which is relating to a feather bonnet that adorns the head, um, or fire water, which is, you know, referring to, like, that's a, that's a tough one. And that can be really complicated. Um, so then how we use language in reference to other nations or other people. And so, 
you know, the I was we were down in Texas and I went into a shop and it was like, oh my gosh, you're my my gringa amiga, and it's like, mm, it's like I don't know a lot of Spanish, but doesn't that mean like white friend? Like, oh, <laughs> 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 I'm like, oh okay, like that's that's cool. That's that's on them. Uh, and so when you start to see these, you start to use these images, um, and these are images that have always been used to relegate people to the past. Um, mm-hmm. you know, tribal communities, they don't live in teepees every single day. Like there's tribal celebrations where teepees come out or they're used in ceremony. Um, the belief system that when you have as an individual, a relationship with the natural world, during like a spirit quest or um that is monitored and it's with instruction from spiritual leaders that you might have a relationship with like the outside community the outside world um to then and so you know this is these are bits and pieces that start to get taken from the umbrella term that is indian so that can be complicated because when you start to homogenize culture, you know, there is 576 tribal nations in the United States. There's 326 reservations, um, and those are just, those are federally recognized nations. Um, each one of those has their own cosmology, worldview, belief system. Um, it can also be regionally specific. And so we can't use these umbrella, like, all Native Americans, all Native people lived in teepees, wigwams, and pueblos. Uh, to all Native people wear feather bonnets and or war bonnets and so on and so forth. And so it's it's cherry-picking culture, and, and that can be a really that, – that's not great. It's, it's not great. Yeah. And that's, I, that's where it starts to feel almost careless that these images or icons or motifs are picked up and used in the way that they are because when we look at something like an Aztec print, a lot of times that's just like this made up geometric pattern when if you trace it back to its roots or origins would be like look at the Apache geometry, basket work or or, um, painting, like all of those shapes had meaning and would tell a story if you look at a teepee every piece of that is important like seven poles for the seven directions um you know a a headpiece will have colors that that mean something or every feather is there for a reason and so when we pick those up i mean and just use them brazenly is where we start to see the difference between appropriation versus appreciation I liked the example that we used to, maybe we said this in the last episode with Hunter, but if somebody's just listening to this one, like, this is a great example that we wouldn't do the same with, like, Medal of Honor, Purple Heart, any sort of, like, I don't know. Like, military. military. Right. Just to put it in perspective for someone that, like, isn't quite getting the connection that... We're not, like, walking around wearing weird. a pleats collar. <laughs> yeah, so, like, why Honestly would you iconic. wear a feather bonnet or a war bonnet or... Like and, a rosary or... Yeah. yeah. There's so many of these symbols that it's, like, when you don't know the meaning, it's so awkward that you're wearing. And, and, some of and I sat like, there and... Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, and I was just going to say, some of those are gender-specific, um, too. And mm-hmm. so... You know, one of my my favorite brands, and I'm not going to name them here, but if if it fits you, like, I'm sorry, I'm calling you out. Uh, <laughs> they did an entire editorial and campaign with these really beautiful models. They were just they were gorgeous women, and each one of them was in a feather bonnet that was probably made in like Russia or China. Mm. It was like those are typically like adorned on male military leaders and the few women that have those rights to wear those have done unbelievable military honors like they have achieved that right and it's you know the same idea of like you wouldn't wear somebody's pins and their medal of honor like just to wear them and so that's erasure at work is us not knowing the history that we just do them blindly and 
in a lot of ways think it's kind of our right to do so. And so, like, as as we talk about this, I think we, we're kind of getting into the overarching um, theme that is cultural appropriation. Well, where do we go with cultural appropriation? How do we achieve cultural appreciation? And for those special people, how do you culturally integrate? So these are three terms that I just want to quickly talk about, and then we can move on from there. And so, right, we've kind of demonstrated what cultural appropriation is. It's the act of a dominant culture claiming the ownership or the rights of a less privileged group. And this can be symbols, it can be dress, and it can be ceremonies. And so, right, our tangible example is uh, non-Native people wearing feather bonnets for entertainment. Uh, the same can be said for, right, like non-black people wearing protective um, uh, hairstyles that aren't for them. And so this is where we want to be. This is this this is the the sweet spot of this whole interaction, and it's the act and desire to learn from from a specific culture, uh, with the deep intention of asking permission or giving credit to the people that that belong to. And so an example of this is purchasing directly from uh, Native American artists, purchasing directly from Native American retailers, um, it, but it's also in your consultation. So there's a lot of ways that we can do this uh, with brands. And so it's bringing on individuals like uh, Martina Roberg, for example, she does a ton of uh, consultation with brands to make sure that they are doing the right things, that their policies fit within this appreciation. Um, you know, looking at retailers like Mud Lowry, who is doing like kick-ass stuff with, with their jewelry. Um, uh, to, But then also being critical of brands who are not doing this. And so, right, like I love Wrangler and I feel like I could speak out to them, but like they went two or three years selling fake squash blossoms that were direct ripoffs from sacred Zuni squash blossoms of the, the 2010s and the 20s. Like, whoa, that was yeah. like, that was really far for me. Well, uh, I think sometimes people don't realize why it's so hurtful and harmful when this happens. And it's important to take a step back and think back to the times when indigenous people, not only were they not allowed to wear these items proudly, but were also punished for doing so in a, in really violent ways that people are still working through today. And so to be one of, you know, to be someone who never had to go through that and and then take those items and wear them uh, and have the privilege to and have, not be yeah. attacked and persecuted mm-hmm. over it. That's that's where it that's what it really comes down to. And yeah, and and I appreciate you making that statement because you know it's something that I think permeates and and there's a lot of people that are influenced by colonization and then erasure. Um, and we can see this within the United States. I mean, it's not just indigenous persons, it's not just, um, you know, quote-unquote Mesoamericans, but it's also our Polynesian relatives, like in Hawaii, right? How many luau's have we been to on the mainland here in the United States that is also like a direct rip-off of their cultures? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see this in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, the the beautiful and vibrant influence that um, – African-Americans have on this culture, but then also in the Western industry. Um, You know, what is it? Every three and six cowboys in the Old West was Latino, Native, or Black. Mm -hmm. That is huge. That is a huge number Mm -hmm. of people of color. And so we're not asking you to... I guess what we're asking you is, and I take a really like deep sigh as I make this statement. Um, <laughs> we're just we're asking you to think critically about like where does that stuff come from? Like where do these belief systems come from? Um, 
and how am I influenced when I see that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I take, for example, the story that I told the last time that we were on the phone was I saw myself in this appropriation for a lot of years because it was the representation that I had in the Western culture. And so I had no problem buying something with a Thunderbird from Wrangler or uh, Cowgirl Tough or some of these other large retailers because I thought I was being seen. Like, oh, my gosh, these are images from my people. Like, this is so cool. And I started to think about it, and it was like, no, these are images directly ripped off from my people. That's a very, very, very different thing. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. Oof, that's heavy. Goosebumps. Yeah. Well, so I love what you always say, too, and you've, you've touched on it a couple of times, but erasure culture and cancel culture are two very different things. And when we have these conversations, it's not that we're we trying. We hate them both. We hate them both. <laughs> we're not trying to cancel everyone, but if you, but if people are feeling called out, because we've been problematic, because y'all. Uh, because yeah, because we're we sitting, all have been problematic. We are sitting here in the full knowledge that Angela and I have both been problematic in the past. Yeah, and I've done but it it's too. About learning. Like, it is, and like as a woman of color, like I've also done it too. Like I just, I admit it, like. Oh my gosh, yeah, I've been to a Cinco de Mayo celebration and mm. that was not run by like Mexican people. Uh I've been to a luau that was not run by Hawaiian people. To, <laughs> um, yeah. to you know, looking at these other examples and that's what I think is such garbage and, and when we talked about this and did this presentation at the Little Bees um retreat, we started this by saying that Cancel culture is garbage, um, and this is not what we're trying to accomplish by any means. Um, we are just saying that, like, as we start to be reflective and looking at how important it is to to do right by these images, but also, like, what our purchasing power is, yeah. um, that's where we want to be. We want to be in that sweet spot of cultural appreciation always. Um and recognize that, like, right, the hardest work that we do, the hardest work that we will ever do is on ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's why cancel culture can become so volatile and aggressive and emotional because somebody is saying, like, you have been wronged and you've wronged these people and you've said this statement, um, but never giving – you the opportunity or that person the opportunity to self-reflect and to change. Um, now, if you're doing it egregiously and you are doing it with the full intention of being like a garbage human being, then I can't. I can't. And I have nothing else to say to you. <laughs> so, so can we for a second get into how we start to make these changes and how we start shifting the narrative, especially from the perspective of shop owners or makers or even consumers? So um, thank you for that question because, you know, ultimately it's about like, where do we go from here? Well, we start to look um, critically about what we've done in the past or potentially like if you are a retailer or if you are a boutique order owner or a consumer, um, and looking at, like, maybe what you have purchased or what you have sold and making a conscious decision to maybe not buy commercially made turquoise squash blossoms from China um, and thinking critically about, like, who are some of the retailers in Indian country that you can purchase from. So that's a huge part is, like, who can you interact with contemporary Native people? The other part is, okay, so you might fall under, like, a retailer or a boutique owner that you have these items in your stock. I would say sell them because I'm not going to ask you to, like, throw things away um, or fill up our landfills with with um, fast fashion. Um, but I am going to say, like, once those are gone, think critically about where you're getting your next stock. Uh, mm-hmm. The other part is be kind to yourself. Um, cause this can be really hard work to, to, to think about, um, critically about like, uh, some of your behaviors of the past, um, that, that can be difficult. 
But it's also then looking at your terminology and your language, too. And so as you move forward, are you using terms like Aztec to loosely um, describe anything that has geometric print? Change that to geometric design. Um, <laughs> it's, it's also get word of the word tribal. Don't call things tribal oh, print. Tribal. Don't call things tribal. Don't call things Navajo. Um, the Navajo people will get very upset about that. <laughs> um, what are some of the other ones that I talked about? You mentioned gringo, which I think is a good. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah. Like well, looking at like other gringo. languages is interesting to yeah. me. Like Abby and I were talking about that. She's fluent in Portuguese. I am not, so uh, I did the Duolingo um, thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And Abby pointed out to me that what I was learning was basically like somebody learning English with a New York accent. That it was like super region specific, <laughs> and because I knew nothing about Portuguese, um, did not know what I was doing. And so I think this kind of applies same thing here that like when you don't know, you might be doing something that looks really silly. <laughs> and it's okay to ask someone who does know. <laughs> you know, and it happens to all of us. Like I just got called out yesterday because I run our social media sites on Facebook and Instagram for the Plains Indian Museum. And we were working on some rotations, um, and it was on me because my research, I, I just overlooked it. Um, I ended up putting a pair of women's moccasins on a male figure mm. and didn't realize it until somebody reached out and was like, oh, yeah, by the way, like that is a specific uh, female design. And I felt awful about it. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to disrespect you guys. Like, this was my research, and it, it just was incomplete. And the guy was so nice to me. He was like, it's okay. Like, I, I'm willing to help you, and I'm willing to, to work with you to fix it. And so we fixed it this morning. And so, like, there's not just one person that is ever going to do it right. There's not just one yeah. culture group that is going to do something every single right. Um or on one tribe that is going to be specific because if somebody says something is okay, it might not be okay to the other people. And yeah, that is also important to, to be critical about. So that's a really good point to take into account the various perspectives surrounding one issue. And it's mm-hmm. important to hear several voices before, before forming your own opinion on it so that you are well-informed and feel, like, comfortable in, I don't want to say, like, defending your stance, you know, but having, being really able to back it. up, yeah, being able to back up what you're doing because, you you know, you've talked to people and you've done your research. Exactly, exactly, and we're all and here to If something learn. feels weird, yeah, yeah, absolutely. If something feels weird to you, it's probably worth investigating. Like, if something feels be. off, take a step back. <laughs> figure out yeah test your gut every single time um and yeah like so so where do we go from here uh well we keep up with these kind of forums uh keep up with other online forums but also i'm really grateful to abby and angela because you know i spent a lot of time doing research and honestly they're about the only ones who are having these critical conversations in the western industry and um that needs to change that in a, in a lot of ways i think there's other people who can speak on other issues but you know with with the issues that have happened in 2020 and 2021 with social justice i mean it's it's time for for brands in the western industry to react and um to be really critical about what they're doing as well Absolutely. Yeah, it's time. We I love wanna, that. If we open any sort of door, it's to invite more people to be talking about things like this. We yeah. do not want to monopolize this conversation. It's not a podcast <laughs> for our voices. No. Because like you said, it's it's time and really it's past time to be having these conversations. So we're just continually honored to be able to sit here and share space with people who have this critical knowledge and really important perspectives to be sharing. And you're so good at teaching, Hunter. Thank you for taking us to school today. So, Hunter, where can everyone find you on social media? 
Yeah, so I mentioned um, the Plains Indian Museum, which I run their social media accounts. Um, and so I share content um, about the everyday lives of Plains Indian people. Um, and, you know, some months it focuses on specific themes, um, like this month because of 4th of July. Um, with July, I'll be focusing on veterans and, and uh, military people. Other months I focus on like animals or florals or, and it's never specific to just one tribe, like each post is different. Um, and you can find us online at uh, Plains Indian Museum at the Buffaloville Center of the West. Um, I am also on social media at Hunter Old Elk. Um, I have a personal page that you can follow. It used to be a business account, but I was getting hit up by a lot of um, <laughs> bots to you know, <laughs> their brands, and I was like, you know, maybe I'll just open up my business account again later, so you can find it there. <laughs> well, I cannot recommend following Hunter and the Plains Indian Museum enough because the content is so good, and it is so beautiful and so informative, so make sure you do that. We'll be coming out with some bonus content throughout this season, but especially based around this episode that we have developed with Hunter herself so that we can keep this conversation going. Yeah. We do. And um, we have a, a game that I really hope, uh, a bingo <laughs> that I really hope they share. Um, as we, we sure do. It. We have the bingo. <laughs> and then we have a, like a dictionary of, you know, some of these terms and some of these words that we've talked about. Um, and then if, like, the viewers uh, have anything that, that might be missing or, um, like, just any kind of, like, self-reflective work, send that to us and help us share these, this information. Um, because I think if you've gotten this far in the episode, like, you're ready to do the work as well. <laughs> yeah, big time. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Hunter, so much for being on with us today. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Breaking Western Podcast, Season 4. We got to work on that. We got to work on that. Oh, three-part <laughs> harmony. Three part All right, ready? <laughs> One, two, three. Four. Four. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I missed that. I yeah, we'll leave the singing to, to Angela. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, we will see you all next week.